0: This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Breaking news. Insert your dramatic gong sound here. Uh, find out if you're on the right side of history. Learn about the latest celebrity you should, you should cancel for the wrong view of oat milk after this commercial break. Well, not so fast, says Jeffrey Bilbro, editor-in-chief of Front Porch Republic and the author of the new book, Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News, published by IVP Academic. Bilbro warns that objects on screen are more distant than they appear. And that the public sphere is simply not conducive to the formation of loving, sustaining communities. He writes this, When the news sets itself up as the light of the world, it is usurping the role that rightly belongs only to the word proclaimed in the gospel. But when the news helps us attend together to the ongoing work of this word, it plays a vital role in enabling us to love our neighbors. So, go ahead, take a walk, carve some wood, spend time in embodied communities, and don't, worry too much about that next election, he says, quote, epistemic humility, particularly regarding the workings of providence, requires us to acknowledge that even when our candidate loses or when a court case is decided in a way that seems wrong or when tragedy strikes, God is still working out his will and he cannot be defeated. The reverse holds true as well. It may be just that when we think we are winning, we are going astray from God's kingdom. A high view of providence and a chastened sense of our ability to recognize God's methods of victory frees us from worrying about whether a given event is good or bad. Well, Bill Brobe joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss the perverse incentives of our media ecosystem, holy apathy, and whether anything good can come from TV news. Spoiler alert, the answer is no. (laughs) Jeff, thank you for being here on Gospel Bound.
1: Well, thank you, Colin. I'm happy to to be talking with you today.
0: Uh, Looking back on this era, today's era, do you think the personal computer and dial-up internet in the 1990s or the iPhone in 2007 will mark the bigger turning point?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I guess the, the way I try to frame it is that they both mark turning points, but of a different sort. And, you know, I think sometimes we, we think about all technological change as kind of progress and, and things are always getting better. But I found the work of someone like uh, Ivan Illich to be quite helpful here in thinking about how some, some modes of industrialization or of technological improvement can actually bring about real goods. But sometimes when those um, extend or, or amp up, they, their, their results can get worse. So, you know, he talks about things having kind of two watersheds when when they industrialize. So he talks about this in terms of schools and um, uh, hospitals and other spheres. But, but the first watershed is where the application of industrial technology really does solve some problems. Uh, it really does improve some things, you know, we can be grateful for many aspects of modern medicine. And I think we can be grateful for many aspects of modern computing as well. But at some point when you just keep implying uh, more and more technological power to these spheres, oftentimes you get, uh, they, they create their own problems. And you know, he identifies that in terms of how uh, medicine gets so expensive and we, we start to have diseases that are caused by the cures for other diseases. Uh, and I think the same thing can happen in computer technology where what at first improves communication uh, later on just it improves chaos and noise and it can become really hard to attend to what's important and to sort through while it's out there. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe early, early computer technologies did solve some problems and, and help out some ways, but uh, maybe the iPhone is at least one mark of a, uh, a prevalence of that technology that unless we put pretty careful limits around it, um, causes perhaps more harm than it, it provides goods.
0: I think the, the way I'm trying to process it is that when the internet was still something you had to go somewhere to be able to do, then it was a part of the rest of our lives. Now that it's something that goes with us wherever we are and intrudes into our lives, it actually becomes the default experience of the world. And that seems to be what I see, at least as the transition of what the iPhone wrought. two thousand seven
1: yeah. yeah. I think that's helpful. That's right. And even, you know, even if you don't have a smartphone, or even if you're not on social media, you can no longer, I mean, you know, I think if you live in America, you can no longer escape uh, the ecosystem that it has transformed. So, you know, it's not like you can just kind of opt out, like you say, right? Even if you don't choose to go there, it chooses to find you.
0: Right. Now, another turning point, which I think is largely driven by the iPhone. I mean, we, we can talk about all kinds of derivative technologies. The fact that we're doing a podcast right now is essentially because of the iPhone. People wouldn't be listening to them without that. They just wouldn't be sitting at desktop computers or within range of their speakers to be able to listen. It's the ability to be able to take it and listen everywhere. But another one of those technologies introduced that transforms our experience of the news, our consumption um, of the news, is social media. But I think you need to explain. A lot of people listening may not even be able to remember really a time apart from that. So explain what social media did to the way we engage with the Internet.
1: Well, that's such a big question, Colin. Uh, Many things. Go check
0: out the whole book if you want yeah. to, If you yeah. want the full answer to this. But, I mean, I, I'm speaking as somebody whose who's media career, journalistic career, yeah. has transcended the before and the after. And I think a lot of people just take for granted, oh, you mean it didn't used to be the case that everybody just had Facebook and Twitter open all day and they just right. saw the Internet through that? Right. That was a big change.
1: I mean, I think one of the challenges, yeah, is that journalists uh, no longer really have, again, the option of – whether they'll be on social media, or whether their their reporting will be shaped by those constraints and incentives, because uh, if you want to g- get sufficient clicks to uh, you know pay for the, the uh, journalism that you are doing, you have to at least you know pay attention to what's going to spread on social media, and and then on the consumer side as as readers of the news, um, you know, social media, uh, whether it be Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter. You, you can be looking at uh, pictures of your you know, your nieces and nephews, and you can be looking at you know, horrible images of what's happening around the world, and you can be looking at a silly meme. And all these different kinds of information uh, have been stripped of their context and laid one alongside another just by virtue of the fact that they are all new. They're all happening right now. But it makes it really hard to figure out and discern which of these should I attend to? And, you know, I'm obviously I should attend to them differently, but how, which of, you know, which of these are more should affect me more. Right. Um, and it can be really difficult to, to navigate that when it's all been flattened and put in the same uh, sort of curated experience for us. So it's not like there's a head, there's a front page that organizes things. You look at the newspaper, read what you need to know, then put it down and move on but now it's just part of this larger stream.
0: Well, what if I told you, Jeff, that um, journalists at our elite institutions get evaluated and paid by how many people read their articles on the internet. If I told you that, what would you then tell me about how that shapes their vocation and how then as a result, that shapes our perspective on what's happening in the world?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think and this is why I tried really hard not to uh, browbeat journalists, because I think by and large, many journalists want to do good work and and many of them do good work, even in difficult circumstances. But the whole profession right now is is kind of caught in these perverse incentives where uh, if you publish things that push all the right buttons and get people angry, uh, then they'll share it with their friends, and more people will, will read it, and you'll get more views, and so your ads will bring in more money. Um, and that's how the business works right now. So there were some bad incentives with previous iterations of the journalistic economy, but I think this, this current one we have now that's certainly still in flux. I mean, it's, it seems like every few years there's the introduction of Substack or podcasting or uh, uh, something else that's going to change it. ad
0: Well, I mean, just, just just to jump on that point, yeah. Just think about this. I would say 10 years ago, that would be, okay, well, we can clearly see the model here. The model is you need to be able to produce something that will go viral because when something then goes viral on Facebook, then all of a sudden people will click on that. That will make our ads more valuable. That world doesn't exist anymore yeah, That, that because right. advertising is more or less a monopoly now of Facebook and of Google. So advertisements outside of those sites digitally basically don't have value and then on top of that facebook also for a variety of reasons will not make you go viral anymore for the most part so that's not even there anymore so when you talk about being in flux exactly absolutely everything exactly. is still in flux i don't yeah. see and that now the new thing that's kicked in since 16 is that places like the new york times are increasingly subscriber driven yep. online subscriber driven but that also means then that they built that subscriber base basically based off tribalism, yep. off I'm the kind of person, and you talk about this in your book, I'm the kind of person who consumes the New York Times. I'm that cultured person. Well, that creates incentives, doesn't it, yeah, as well, absolutely. to what journalists will cover?
1: And, and maybe they're not quite the same as the incentives to go viral, but they're also not great. Um, and, and you know, I, and I also, places like the New York Times or the Washington Post can can build those subscriber bases- by going national, right? So they have to, to appeal to this national or international market, right? And so local news really suffers, um, and you know many of the things now that, that we pay for to read don't relate to our uh, regional communities, and and so there's this increasingly prevalent problem of what, what some people call news deserts. Um, so yeah, it's challenging, and and I think uh, I hope. That, that some smart journalists will keep experimenting with things and, and maybe some new models will come up that, that are more healthy. But we have to be clear-eyed about the incentives toward yeah, tribalism or kind of confirming our worst uh, our worst impulses toward uh, reading reading news that we only that only confirms what we pre-existing believe um, doesn't cause us to wrestle with nuance. You know, all those those things that seem to be in place.
0: Well, you hear all the time people respond to what you're saying right here, and then they say, well, that's why we just need to escape our echo chamber. What if we just diversify the voices we hear on social media? You don't recommend that <laughs> because you actually see that having the opposite, I mean, having its own problems. Go ahead and explain that. What problems do you see with yeah. that? Yeah,
1: and, and, you know, I, I wrote this uh, – in the last couple of years. And then just this year, about the same time my book came out, Chris Bale has a book, um, I think, called Breaking the Social Media Prism How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. And he yeah. begins by saying, by giving this long, fascinating study, that exposing people to voices outside their echo chambers actually increases uh, polarization. Uh, so I was like, Oh, I was right. But I wish I'd had his book to (laughs) to confirm.
0: (laughs) No, that was, that was confirming for me as a reader because I'd seen so many other people say this just recently. And then I saw it pop up in your book and I thought, wow, yeah, he could see this coming. It's counterintuitive. Yeah. But then you think about it and you realize, Oh, that
1: is what happens. And part of it is because of the issues we just talked about. Um, the kind of news and the kind of things that spread on social media and, and national media uh, are sort of predisposed toward the extreme. And uh, you know, we, we hear the crazy stories about those dumb liberals or those really dumb conservatives. Those are the things that get shared. And so actually what, what people call high information voters or people uh, tend to caricature various uh, political or social groups worse. Than low information readers, you know, it's like the more you know, uh, because of the nature of our media ecosystem, the more crazy you think people are. Uh, so it's really perverse and um, kind of backward from what you would expect. But when you recognize how our whole information ecosystem has been kind of degraded by some of these uh, technologies and incentives, then then you realize just you know tuning into some other extreme voice on the other side of the political spectrum from you is unlikely to actually uh, help you think through issues more carefully.
0: I think you could say that somebody who is a high information voter, high information reader in 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990, um, 2000, is extremely different from what that means now. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a complete flip
1: there. And I think, you know, uh, again, there were some problems with uh, uh, the, you know, the kind of centralized media ecosystem of that day and and the the more uh, lowering the the, gate, not lowering, opening the gates, letting more people participate in the media certainly helped solve some of those problems. But then it also created its own set of new problems.
0: Right. I love your perspective here. Uh, You say this, if your response to the news fits perfectly with any partisan narrative – Whether a nostalgic longing to restore some idyllic time or awoke fury at those on the wrong side of history, it's unlikely to be keyed to God's eschatological victory. Explain, Jeff, how does our view of progress contribute to the problems you've identified?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, one of the ways to define the news, as its name suggests, is what's new, what's happening right now. And I think that kind of uh, interest in... What is current is a relatively recent phenomenon that that I try to show is caught up in this uh, Hegelian view of history as a progressive development of the human civilization, human condition. And, and that can be narrated in all kinds of different ways, right? You can be a Marxist and narrate it towards uh, the communist um, vision of, of a good society. Maybe more likely today you would be some sort of a, democratic liberal uh you know not not in the political party sense but in the sense that like all nations and all human civilizations are becoming more uh egalitarian and democratic and um liberalism is spreading um so there's different way or or, or a kind of a technological version that just shows how technology will continue to get better and better and, and that's the, the 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 way that we mark the progress of history but all these Uh, I think are not really Christian and uh, and lead us to kind of overemphasize what's happening right now, because we want to see how is my version, my my vision of history coming to coming to fruition. And Christians should be, uh, you know, the way I read the Bible, uh, waiting for Christ's second coming to bring about redemption and pretty. Uh, skeptical that anyone before Christ who offers that view of redemption is uh, false, is, is not, not offering the true gospel. So, you know, we, we can cheer when we see the kingdom in breaking in a broken world and, um, and, and be grateful for that, but we shouldn't uh, over-invest, put our hope in, in these instances or, or try to see, you know, human progress as a kind of ushering in, uh, Christ's redemption. So, you know, I, I try to draw on, say, Augustine's two cities there, where he is responding to people in his time who had conflated Roman Empire with the spread of Christianity. And when the empire uh, takes these body blows, they think, "Whoa, you know, is God losing the battle." And Augustine says, "No, we can never conflate the city of man with the city of God. You know, these these cities are always overlapping. We're always part of these two two uh, realms." And it can be hard to distinguish them sometimes, but we've got to try because otherwise we're going to become idolaters and uh, misplace the kingdom of God with some version of of the human good.
0: Uh, I'm just going to transition straight into this one. Have you ever seen someone who consumes a lot of news today on whatever platform become a better neighbor as a result of that? It's going to sound like a facetious question, but it's not. It's just a straight up question.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to say that that's at least possible, right? That that we can become more empathetic or or I will say this, sometimes I think, you know, during the pandemic say, sometimes people who try to understand as best as they could sort through the craziness and all this there's a lot of voices, you know, what's actually going on and what are the real concerns could maybe speak up with greater wisdom in a school board meeting or in a church trying to sort out, you know, how, how to mask or not mask. mask. You know, I, so I do know say some church elders or some people in these kind of with local responsibilities who really do a good job or try to, of uh, sort of sorting through these broader, uh, voices, you know, from a, from a more national global perspective and then bring that information to bear on these local decisions. But of course, they are fighting an uphill battle, right? Because these, these decisions, about, you know, to take the pandemic, cause it's such a, a obvious example. Uh, these decisions about whether, you know, pastors or musicians or congregants should be masked or not masked, or, uh, you know, we should gather indoors or outdoors. They, they, we can't just have sort of real discussions about uh, these and make the right decision for our community because they get so caught up in the national politics. and, uh, so in general, it's been really counterproductive for helping us to love our neighbor well. And that's, you know, it's a tragedy because you would think that making more information available to everybody would help us all make more informed decisions. But given the, again, we've talked about in terms of the media ecosystem, that's usually not what happens.
0: I want to try an emerging thesis on you. Okay. And you can pick it apart. All right. Okay, so especially now, it's always been hard for somebody to just have to sift through all of the information on a given topic, given all the different topics we have to confront day-to-day and decide for themselves which ones they're supposed to trust and how to make a decision. That's always been hard. How much more difficult is that now, of course, when the outlets have proliferated beyond anybody's comprehension? Okay, so... As a result we're in a situation where not only is it harder for any individual to try to discern between source to source from topic to topic what's authoritative, what's true, what's what's right but now we also have the same problems that we've always had which are that most people don't think that way. Most people find a perspective on the world that they launch onto, latch onto, and then they just stick with that, and that becomes their interpretive grid for everything, and that's often been politics, so you sort of all of your conclusions are predetermined according to which team you're on. Most people do that because they simply can't sit they don't have the time, they don't have the ability, they don't have the understanding it's just it's just beyond their grasp for very understandable reasons. Here's how I see people sorting out generally right now, and I think this is Almost in some ways, replacing our political parties um, as they re- as they correspond to as they sort of map onto these media consumption realities. You have two options: you can choose conspiracy, or you can choose credentials. Trust the credentials. Trust the science. Trust the experts, or trust the Facebook group. Trust the email from your friends. Never trust the authorities in there. you think there's any merit potentially to that thesis?
1: Yeah. I mean, I certainly agree with your description of the landscape. And, uh, you know, absolutely the human problem of not knowing what to trust and having to, to trust other people to, to guide us through information overload is only more acute now. The only thing I would sort of add or maybe to that is that, you know, even people on the, say, conspiracy side, uh, often, it actually goes both ways, but, you know, often it's like the sort of celebrity who gives voice to that conspiracy, right? right? Yeah. So you have your own alternative. They're still an authority.
0: They're they are, still an authority. yeah. Yep.
1: And, and similarly, even on the credential side, you know, it can become kind of a... What's the right word? It, it's like this sort of mystical voodoo, like, oh, because you have this letter after your name, you can do no right. wrong. And, right. and and you are now, you know, because you you say you understand uh, the biology of viruses, you're obviously an expert on how to persuade people or how to organize political or economics. Or, yeah,
0: public health or just right. public health decisions I, or school decisions. Yeah.
1: So right. so like the credential thing is is a weird conspiracy, too, because uh, like... You know, people who might be experts in one thing obviously don't always have expertise in other. <laughs> and
0: I and I don't mean to suggest that those are coherent or logical. Right. I'm really talking about the mood and the the immediate reaction. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, there, there's the reaction of credentialed authority, boom, or just the reaction of I don't trust credentialed authority. I, right. I will say that one of the things I've come to understand in about myself in recent years is that many people who taught and raised me to be a political conservative were never political conservatives in any kind of historic or or coherent ideological sense they were people who had rural instincts and hated the media
1: yeah and and i think you know will call it I, Someday I want to think through this more deeply. So maybe this is kind of half-baked, but hey. (laughs) That's what podcasts are for. That's what
0: podcasts are for.
1: You know, I've just been struck, uh, and it's not just me, obviously, uh, after Trump, a lot of people turned to Christopher Lash. But I think Christopher Lash's book, Revolt of the Elites, which is like kind of 1992-ish, I think, uh, where he talks about how the credentialed class has uh, kind of abandoned uh, the populace. You know, and it kind of, and it's a continuation or kind of follow up to his bigger book, true and only heaven about the longer populist tradition in America and how, Hey, populists aren't always, uh, you know, conspiracy theorists. They're oftentimes people who see the problems with credentialism and recognize how elites have, have abandoned their responsibilities. Um, To me that, that those problems that lash identifies in the eighties and nineties have only been exacerbated. And so what you're seeing now is this, this kind of the, the consequences of an elite class that really has revolted, that has given up on the populace and then uh, a populace who for lots of good reasons, and then lots of bad reasons, uh, both uh, no longer trusts the elite. Right. So, you know, right. So many of these problems come back to trust, right? Who who do we trust? How do we know um, who we should trust? And that's why I, I try to talk about ways of um, restoring trust, even in, in limited ways, in terms of finding uh, people that you can belong to, that right. you can feel uh, we belong to one another. We might disagree, uh, but we're responsible to and for one another. Uh, and I trust you. you know, even if I disagree yeah. with you on certain things, I trust you. And then those Opportunities and occasions just have become so much more rare. I think in our, um, you know, social media shaped world.
0: Well, a a couple a couple years ago, just to take this in some some personal directions, a couple years ago, um, I published something about vaccines. I think it was during the measles outbreaks, and I just was not aware of the. Vir- virulent uh, response <laughs> uh, that we were we were going to get to that and so i was talking with one of my colleagues about it and we just sort of shook our heads like where are people getting this information why are they so confused about this and then i stopped and i said i started to list all the things that i don't trust about the government yeah and all the things that are completely proven that the government had com- had totally lied about and that media had been complicit in perpetuating those lies and i stopped and i thought this is an a an epistemological crisis i don't know who i'm supposed to trust and how so my instinct says okay i don't really have any option here but to trust the doctors on this issue but then I, i i don't I don't trust the authorities on 20 other issues. So that's right. why I'm, I'm trying to say right. that there's not some sort of easy answer. I wish there were this self-righteous approach where we could just say, "Why is everybody being so dumb and here's Jeff Bilbro's book, reading the times <laughs> to be able to help give the answer." No, there's a yeah. there's a bigger shift that's happening underneath that that makes things very difficult. And I'll I'll take this to to my community growing up. The best of my rural community growing up was because we attended to relationships over the course of generations in just the way you described right there. The localism was the strength. The sense that you knew everybody would take care of you and that that was just a given because you were part of that community and if you needed any further incentive. Your parents went to school together. Your grandparents went to school together, fought in the war together, things like that. There was just, that was a, for for a young person growing up, there was a tremendous amount of comfort that came from that. But it has changed in 20 years. Yeah. Because those people are not primarily attending now to each other in those relationships. They still do in a lot of ways. But see, now you have social media. Right. And I didn't know what everybody's politics were when I was growing up, but now I do, and holy cow, they are really extreme. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know if that resonates exactly. at all with what you've no. seen. No, I mean, I'll, I'll take those, and that's. I think both of those are accurate, and I and I think Ross Douthat, uh, you know, he has a new book about his own struggles with, I think, Lyme's disease. It is, like, it's Lyme it's disease. Like, okay. Yes, that's right. And how when he. Um, was you know trying to get that diagnosed and treatment he experienced again and again the medical establishment writing off his his uh experiences and symptoms and not not giving him straight answers and i think you know he he said at one point i think in one of his columns that if you've gone through that kind of an experience well then it makes sense to not trust the vaccine right like these guys have have not taken their science has not helped me or acknowledged my reality, why should I trust their science? So I think people who who don't see the ways that the medical or the political or the journalistic establishment have failed, then don't give enough credence to the legitimate distrust that a lot of people have.
0: You know, Jeff, I think you just taught me something there because the areas that I know professionally that I've worked in are media and politics. And I often get really confused with beloved family members of mine who don't seem to understand my cynical views on those two things that are hard earned from experience in those realms. Now here's an interesting thing though. Early on in my marriage, I would often say, we got to go to the doctor for this. We got to go to the doctor. We got to talk to the doctor about this. We got to find out what the doctor is going to say. My wife would say, no no we don't that's not we can figure that out on our own that's not a big deal and i just kept thinking what is her problem with doctors like what, the, the, these are the people who tell us what's wrong these are the people who help us Her dad's a surgeon um <laughs> she knows what doctors no. know and what they don't know and so she actually had much less trust in yeah. doctors because of the doctors in her family, not because they were bad. They're very, they're very successful, but because she has a more realistic perspective about their yeah. abilities and their their blind spots. And I thought, I mean, you're, and you're helping me to connect the dots here in ways that I hadn't quite done before. Of, yeah, that's I just don't have experience in that realm, so I'm apt to overtrust, and I've had to learn that over time. Of. Doctors in some ways, clearly they know what they're talking about in so many ways, but they also depend a lot on our self-diagnosis to be able to make decisions. And then you get a situation like this in Lyme disease where they just will not listen to you at all. And yeah, that's why I don't think there's some sort of neat narrative coming out of your book, except that we should give attention to those relationships that God has called us explicitly to tend to, the physical neighbors, starting with our families and those other physical neighbors, our church. And that's one reason why I love this this book so much. Now, I want to ask a a skeptical question, because I think it's going to be something that people will ask naturally coming out of your book. And I would say, do you think I shouldn't care or even watch the tragedy that unfolded at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, how could you not be aware, right? How could you not watch? But I do think, um, I guess what I would say is I think it depends. Um, I, I do think one of the strengths of American Christianity uh, and evangelicalism in part because of its missionary focus has been a real concern for, you know, international uh, relations and how, how, how the body of Christ extends beyond national borders. So you know, I don't want. I don't think missions is good. I think caring for uh, people and you know, both Christians, non Christians, other places is good. I think that the danger is uh, that we don't always recognize our own limitations. You know, so I have this whole section where I talk about early on about uh, what Charles Dickens terms telescopic morality—that sometimes we can uh, attend more with greater energy, emotional or spiritual energy to issues that are far away about which we can do little. Right. Uh, and that, and, and then, we, and then we actually have less, you know, we're limited people. We, we have less energy and prayer and attention to, uh, those close at hand. Of course, Dickens is a great example is this woman in a bleak house who cares all about these African orphans and doesn't really do much to actually help them, but she is very, uh, active nevertheless in organizations and her own kids are basically orphans because she ignores them. So Um. that's clearly an extreme. Um, but I do think it can be so easy to be emotionally, uh, disturbed about these things, but then, you know, what, what do we do about it? Do we just get all worked up and, you know, posts about these things on Facebook and then forget, did that really help anybody? Um, so I think, what I try to, to really recommend in this is to, to be attentive to what our vocations might be. And I get part of this from Thomas Merton, you know, what is God calling me to attend in and be invested in? And I hope for some American Christians it's Afghanistan, right? Uh, or it's Haiti or it's uh, these other places. But I also hope that for them, it becomes a long-term process of learning and dialogue and conversation and meaningful involvement, you know, both in prayer and uh, in physical things so that it's not just, did you hear what you see the latest crazy thing that happened? What a tragedy. And uh, let's blame it on, you know, the people that I hate. Um, So, so I think we have to be really careful about how we attend to these things and and just recognize our limits and uh, try to be prayerful and, and listen to others around us about what might God be calling me to attend to and then not feel bad, about not being informed about everything, you know, Uh, we shouldn't feel like we have a responsibility to, to know everything about everything.
0: Holy apathy, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: A holy (laughs) apathy. I didn't, I didn't think I would end up here as somebody who is a professional journalist, but my professional journalism has always coincided with a kind of classic conservatism. Um, which i think is part of why I resonate with your writing there yeah. you, you, you said recognize our limits right that is classic conservatism that is not contemporary conservatism <laughs> that's right there, there is right. no there is no limits party right now in the United states there's two there are no limits parties and that's just speaking personally for myself it's why I feel politically homeless there but recognizing your limits does not mean you don't care about the world. It simply allows you to be more attentive to the things that you can make a difference with. And and you gave the example of, of the woman whose own children were orphans. I would say in response to the classic conservative view would be the revolutionary mindset that I yeah. think we take for granted so much today in both both parties in some ways. Um, but I would say that was also captured very well by Fyodorovsky. Fyodor Dostoevsky of course an anti-revolutionary yep. writer and one of the things he says so eloquently that goes along well with that he puts in the words in one of his characters humanity i love it's just humans i hate exactly <laughs> it's the same concept there it is easy to get wrapped up in a love for humanity which actually becomes a license for evil yeah because you're exactly right when you see the afghanistan thing you jump there straight from there to and now it's time for me to grandstand in blaming whatever people I've already determined are at fault. I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. Now, the people who have done good work in Afghanistan, who have friends there, and who have family there, and are trying to help those people get out, given what's coming, I got a lot of respect for those people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a different thing, because the reality is the rest of us, we don't really control much when it comes to this. That's our limit right. there. So. And I'm not trying to put your words in your mouth, no, but I'm I, trying to I process and apply. Yes,
1: no, that's yeah. right. And I think it, it, what you said also is is important to remember that you know, sort of classical conservative ideas of human limits and um, our own fallibility, right, is really not represented by either uh, major political party in America right now. So our own
0: fallibility, yeah, I just couldn't agree more. That's why I, I love that perspective on providence that you that you stayed in this book of if you know anything about history and that should be what classic conservatism does is we learn the lessons of history it should be that i mean i'm a big world war ii buff but you can apply this to every single event the moment when people seem to be at their pinnacle when Hitler is on the doorstep of Stalingrad and they're just about to win the decisive final battle of world war two is exactly the moment when he's going to, everything's going to collapse on him. Just that's, that's the lesson everywhere in history. So if you're trying to read the news to decide, am I on the right side of history? Good luck. Because the one thing we know is history will probably judge you harshly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the great irony I'm sure about, uh, our current political and cultural moment with this obsession about like, you know, uh, adjudicating the the virtues or vices of past people uh, that, you know, in a hundred years, we do not know, you know, what that generation will judge to be our greatest faults, but we will be judged because we all have our own sins. Right. Um, So we should be a little bit more, I guess, merciful.
0: Uh, Chastened. Yeah. Some sort of humility in there. It, um, yeah, well, let's 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 end on the, this final three. I like to ask these final three questions, looking for quick responses here from Jeffrey Bilbro, author of "Reading the Times: a Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News." First one: How do you find calm in the storm?
1: Uh, I think you know I talk in there about um, learning a craft uh, has been very helpful to me as an academic and intellectual who spends a lot of time thinking to uh to shut things off and uh make something whether that be a meal or uh you know something at legos with my daughter or oh, nice uh, like mowing that. the lawn or, or taking a bike ride you know i think we we that's that's very helpful to me
0: yeah i like that yeah i didn't uh didn't understand why so many theologians were also amateur woodworkers until i started doing this kind of knowledge work yeah. and yeah. then you understand the beauty of just sitting down with your six-year-old son and putting together a Lego castle. Yeah. Um, it's very cool. Well, uh, Jeff, where do you find a good news today?
1: I, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book. I really, and I, and I just uh, read this uh, in world magazine. I, I am so impressed with world magazines um, uh, compassion uh, hope awards. I think they call them yeah. right where they, they profile these nonprofits around the country who are doing uh the kind of, you know, there's nothing headline worthy about this stuff, right? It's not like some scandal happened or, or, uh, they just transformed, you know, 10,000 homeless people to, uh, whatever, right. These are people who are in the trenches having worked at these, these nonprofits for decades, but often don't get much notice. And, you know, world sends a reporter out to, to talk to them, talk to people they work with and try to understand what makes them, uh, so vibrant. And those stories always both encourage and, um, and convict me right how can i more radically live out the the good news of christ in my neighborhood and, and those stories often um uh yeah they, they they do that help me with that
0: you give me a chance to caveat that if i've said anything in this podcast that could be construed as criticism of mindy bells or marvin alasky <laughs> i take go. it back <laughs> two of my heroes i take it back There are good Um, ways, redemptive ways to be a Christian journalist in ways that do raise awareness for good. And I think that's what you're talking about there. That is some of that news you can use. That is both inspiring, it's challenging, and it also gives you ideas of what you can then do, how you can love your neighbors. Yeah, That kind of journalism I will always uh, support. Last question, Jeff, what's the last great book you've read?
1: Probably, uh, you know, I, I'm now, at, I guess I'm confirmed middle age, so I now have to reread books that I read, you know, as a college student, uh, because I've forgotten them. And so I just... Uh, over, over That's why you teach
0: them. That's why you that's teach them. exactly him. right.
1: It's exactly right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes my class rotations, I don't get to re- read all the books I need sure. to read. So I, I recently reread Boethius's Consolations, and yeah. man, that was a book I needed to read. Uh, so it, it had been a decade since I'd read it, and... I'm a different person now, you know. Yeah. So I think returning to to kind of that classic of the early Christian period was uh, was quite helpful for me. Great.
0: My guest on Gospel Bound this week has been Jeffrey Bilbro, author of Reading the Times: A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News, published by IVP Academic. And I can just go ahead and say, as I said on social media, that it's been uh, it's been my favorite book that I've read um, this year so far. I'm always hopeful. Maybe there'll be a better one out there, but this has been one of my top recommendations for the year. So, Jeff, thanks for writing it, and thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound.
1: Uh, It was a delight. Thanks so much, Colin.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold.